It is good to be back with you. Uh, it is kind of odd, I know, to hop back into the biblical text at this point, but as Dave said, our schedules uh, fit better this way. Uh, I didn't, uh, the first week when I was here uh, to share briefly uh, part of that lesson, I failed to mention that one of my connections to Otter Creek is that when Judy and I were serving a church in Chicago back in the early 80s, Otter Creek sponsored us for a year or two uh, while we were up there. So we've had a long relationship with this congregation going back to when Dad uh, preached here and uh, love this church and love what you're doing. Happy to be able to be a part of this. What we're going to do today and probably some into next week is try to answer a question that inevitably comes up and has probably been rattling around for a number of you all along the way. It's a question that we run into every time we teach this. Christians, somebody will inevitably say, but didn't God give the land to Israel? Whatever's going on over there, whatever the problems are, uh, however terrible it feels for the Palestinians, doesn't the land belong to the people of Israel? That's a very common question. It's one that probably a lot of us who've grown up reading the Bible, hearing these things in church, are probably wondering about. What does the Bible say about this? And so we're going to try to look today at the sort of theological side of this issue. Uh, how are we to understand the Bible and its relevance to what's going on in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And the first question, though, that I think we probably need to answer and, or ask and just have kind of in the back of our minds as we're doing this is to some degree, in modern times, in democracies that we're trying to live in and Israel says it's trying to live in, there is a question about whose scriptures are going to be authoritative in a democracy. That is not an irrelevant question. Some people will say, okay, that's what you think the Bible says, but so what? I don't read your Bible. I have a different set of scriptures. So what gives your religious text authority in my country? That's a question we would ask an American. It's part of our debate over the freedom of religion and the separation of church and state. Is how do we understand the place of religion in a democracy? Uh, and so the question that would be asked in Israel is, is it the Jewish scriptures, is it the Christian scriptures, or is it the Muslim scriptures that are going to have authority over what we do, if any of them? And then we'd have to ask, okay, whose interpretation of those scriptures? If you're going to say you're going to give preeminence to the Jewish text, is it going to be the Reformed, uh, conservative, orthodox, Hasidic, Zionist, or non-Zionist view of the scriptures? Which, which Jewish view? If you're going to talk about the Christian scriptures, is it the Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, the Protestants, the Evangelicals, the Christian Zionists, Messianic Jewish interpretations? And we could keep going on with Christian <laughs> interpretations. And among the Muslims, we'd have to ask the same question, although there aren't as many divisions in Islam, there's still a question about is it the Sunni or the Shia interpretations of uh, scripture? Is it the uh, Salafist, Wahhabi, the radical Islamists? Whose interpretation of your scriptures are going to govern the laws of the land and, uh, and how we treat these issues? 
perhaps the best way to phrase the question is, should ancient religious texts be used to give preferential status to any ethnic group? That's ultimately the question that we're asking. Well, however you understand your scriptures, should your scriptures be used to give preferential status to any ethnic or religious group in a democracy? And that's what we're going to begin to ask. But I really think for most of us, we do need to deal with the question because we're Christians and we do believe in the Bible and we're trying to figure out how it speaks to this and there's a lot of debate about it. We do need to ask the question, what does the Bible say? Now we have been exposed in most of our lifetimes to a dominant narrative that says all Christians know that God gave the land of Israel to the Jewish people forever. And that's what the Bible said. That is the irrevocable promise of God. And therefore, the Jewish people today have a right to the land given to them by God. What most of us perhaps don't know is that is a new way of reading the Bible. That way of reading the Bible is only a hundred or so years old and has only been really popular, dominant in evangelical circles for the last maybe 50 years or so. We say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> we all just know that's what the Bible says. But that's not what Christians taught historically for the last 2,000 years. Now, it's hard to summarize what Christians teach on any subject. <laughs> But on this view, there are basically, on this subject, there have basically been three major ways of reading the Bible on the subject of how uh, uh, God views the Jewish people since Christ. Uh, one of those views uh, could be summarized as the church replaces Israel. In this view, you kind of imagine Israel's going along here. We get to Jesus. The Jews reject Jesus, so God rejects the Jews. Then God creates the church. And the church is now the new Israel replacing the old Israel. And God has no more place for the Jews and his plans and his purposes. Uh, he, uh, he's done with them because they rejected Jesus. Uh, that view is sometimes called replacement theology. And those today that advocate that Israel belongs today to the modern Jewish state by the promise of God uh, will label anyone who rejects that view as holding replacement theology and will label them as being either anti-Semitic or, or supporting an anti-Semitic position. It is true that anti-Semites typically used this way of reading the Bible as a justification for persecuting Jews. Jews killed Jesus, God rejected Jews, God has no more use for Jews, and that kind of uh, supported their hatred and prejudice against Jews. You do not have to be an anti-Semite to hold this view, because all this view ultimately states is God has rejected the status of Israel as his chosen people, and now the church is God's chosen people and anybody's welcome in the church including Jews. So you don't you don't have to be an anti-Semite to hold this view because you can welcome Jews into the church in this view and not be you know uh, hateful or prejudiced. But this has been the haven of anti-Semites in the church is to hold this view. 
Another view, a better view, uh, is that the church fulfills uh, Israel. That the promises and prophecies made to Israel are fulfilled in Christ and continue in the church. The church is the continuation of Israel. Paul says in uh, Romans uh, 9 through 11, God hasn't rejected his people according to the flesh and that Gentiles are grafted into the Jewish tree. And so, yes, the church is the new Israel, but as the fulfillment of Israel, it's the continuation of what God intended all along. And so uh, God has not rejected Israel. He, reject, he accepts Jews on the same basis that he accepts anyone else on the basis of faith in Christ. But this is not a matter of rejecting Israel. It's a matter of continuing and expanding the purpose of Israel. My father used to teach it this way. He would say Christianity is Judaism internationalized. So it's, it's not rejecting Judaism, it's the fulfillment of Judaism and its purposes. That, that uh, as we'll see in a moment, God called Abraham as part of a plan to bless all nations. And so the church is the fulfillment of the plan for Israel and continues the work of Israel. And so Paul did not regard himself as abandoning his Jewish faith in order to become a Christian. Paul viewed himself as being a true Jew by believing in the Messiah who was a Jewish Messiah. And all of us who are Gentiles then, uh, Paul says in uh, Ephesians 2, we have to come in now and be a part of the covenants of promise and be a part of the one people of God. So it's uh, not a rejection of Israel, it's a fulfillment. Now, the Zionists will label us as uh, holding replacement theology, but that's not accurate. These are different ways of reading the Bible. This is the right way to read the Bible, but you're welcome to disagree. <laughs> the third view that arose with uh, uh, Darby was popularized in the Schofield Bible is dispensationalism. Now, we don't have time to do this, and Richard, you ought to do this instead of me, but uh, dispensationalism is the view that when Israel rejected uh, uh, Jesus as the Messiah, God created the church as an alternate path. And eventually, Israel will come to faith in the Messiah in the end times, and uh, they'll be part of ushering in the new age. But we're in a, in a, a kind of an intermediate dispensation now where God is working through the church, but that wasn't the original plan. And eventually, all the prophecies, prophecies and promises made to Israel will be literally fulfilled in the end time in some way. Uh, this is, in my view, in the view of most uh, conservative and moderate and certainly liberal uh, Christians, this is a very problematic way of reading the Bible. And it runs... Uh, headlong into trouble in the book of Hebrews that says we're in a new covenant that's superior to the old covenant and the former things are passing away and gives no indication that this is some second thought on the part of God and that in the end we're going to go back to a temple and back to sacrifices and back to the you know uh, the old priesthood and, and uh, old way of doing things. It's a very problematic view, but it got popularized in the Schofield Bible and then TV preachers, uh, a lot of them uh, were kind of attracted to this and it's become uh, 
parts of it have sort of bled back into premillennial Christianity that's popular among evangelicals. And uh, this is what's behind Christian Zionism. The Christian view that, uh, or the view of those Christians who believe that the modern nation of Israel is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham and the fulfillment of biblical prophecy are nearly all dispensationalists. Or at least the dispensational theology helps shape that way of reading the Bible. So what we're going to do uh, 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 today is, uh, is take a look at the promises and prophecies and see is, is that really what the Bible says. Now just to I think I just said most of this. Uh, this is probably where the text, where the Christian Zionist view most impacts the question of the modern nation of Israel, is the belief that it is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy and therefore that you can't criticize or oppose the nation of Israel. Hardline Christian Zionists like John Hagee in San Antonio who's raising millions of dollars for the settlement movement in Israel say you cannot criticize the nation of Israel because God said whoever curses Abraham will be cursed. And we'll come back to that point a little bit later. But uh, I don't normally like to speak publicly about somebody else's religious views and just attack them. But that's just nonsense. Because if John Hagee is right, all the prophets of Israel are cursed by God. Jesus is cursed by God. God is cursed by God. Because at various points they all curse the nation of Israel. To say you can't criticize a modern nation <laughs> because they've got some preferred status under the promise to Abraham ignores everything the Bible says about the role of prophets in speaking to power. It's a very scary view. We would never accept it in our own country. Can you imagine us getting up and preaching? You cannot criticize President Bush or President Obama because God will curse you. And none of us would hold that view. But that is exactly what many Zionists are preaching right now about Israel. You cannot oppose them. It doesn't matter what's going on. Did I say that strongly enough? <laughs> you don't want to know that. All right. But didn't God promise the land to Abraham forever? So God calls Abraham over in Mesopotamia and says, I'm going to take you to this land and make a great nation out of you, and I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you. And anyone who dishonors you, uh, I will curse. Notice that is made to Abraham, not to the people of Israel for all generations. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he takes him to this land and tells him to look around, lift up your eyes, look north, south, east, west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Well that makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? And that's why it's the verse everybody will point to. God said forever. Uh, of course, goes on to say, but not yet. You're going to have to wait a while. They're going to go into slavery in Egypt, and then on the, in the fourth generation they're going to come back, and then I'm going to give your offspring this land 
from the river of Egypt to the great river to the river Euphrates. So there is this promise. It's going to create a nation out of Abraham's descendants. It's going to give them the land forever. And it's just going to be this land from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. First problem with this view that that verse means God is giving the land of Israel to Abraham, his descendants, forever, without question, they always have title to the land no matter what, is that the facts of history do not support that view. If that, if that is what God meant when God spoke to Abraham, something went wrong <laughs> somewhere because God never did it. And we introduced a little of this the first week of class. So uh, this is, you know, Abraham came from here over here and God said, look around and I'm going to give you this land. And now the question then is, what did God actually promise to Abraham? This river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Well, the river Euphrates is this river running along here. There's a debate about what the river of Egypt is. There are uh, a few possibilities. Many scholars, most scholars probably believe it was a brook down here that separated uh, what we would call the Sinai Peninsula from the land of Palestine uh, or Canaan at that time. Others believe it was uh, one of the branches of the Nile that came over and emptied into uh, uh, the Mediterranean Sea right up here on this side of the Sinai. And then some, the Zionists often say that it uh, is the Nile River itself. So uh, if it starts here at this brook then it runs, most scholars believe that the idea was it ran up here to the headwaters of the Euphrates River. Some said it included the Sinai because it went over to this branch of the Nile. We're going to come back in a minute to did Israel ever get all this land and how much. But many Zionists now argue that God's promise was from the Nile River all the way to the Euphrates over in Mesopotamia. That covers uh, much of Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Egypt. If that's what God promised Abraham, then when they came back from Egypt, Moses and Joshua lead them back from Egypt, and God says, "Here, I'm leading you into the land that I promised to give you. They didn't get it. For the next... 1600 years that larger territory was controlled by pagans. Then for the next 300 years by Christians. Then for the next 1300 years by Muslims. It was never controlled by the Jewish people. Ever. Not even for a little while. That is just plainly not what God gave Abraham. So when we look at the, what was more likely the promised land, most scholars would agree, starts down here either uh, along the edge of the Sinai or including the Sinai and going up to the headwaters of the Euphrates. From the time of the conquest, from the time that Israel comes to the promised land to inherit it until the present, Israel controlled most of that land for only a period of about a hundred years in the time of David and Solomon. From that conquest until the present, Israel controlled what we might call the heart of the Promised Land from Dan to Beersheba for about 600 years until the Assyrian exile took most of the northern uh, kingdom away. 
and from 586 BC when the southern kingdom was carried away by the Babylonians for the last 2600 years Israel only had an independent kingdom in part of the heart of the promised land for less than a hundred years around the time of the Maccabees between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You look at the facts of history you have to ask the question if you're approaching this from the standpoint of a Bible-believing Christian who believes God makes promises and does what God promises, then you have to say, did God promise this land to Israel forever, without condition, no matter what, for all time? And the answer has to be clearly not. Something else is going on here. Does that make sense? Now, you may still have questions, that's fine, but we're going to look now at what the promises and prophecies say and at what I think may be a better way of interpreting the promises and prophecies of God regarding the land. Uh, we already did the timeline stuff uh, before, I'm going to skip that. Promises in the Bible, I think as a general principle, need to be understood in context. In fact, anything in the Bible needs to be understood in context. We need to ask, what was the context in which this promise was made? Uh, for example, I saw a greeting card one time in a Christian bookstore that uh, for an occasion where people are parting company, somebody's moving away. And so you give them this lovely little greeting card that says, The Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent from one another. It is a beautiful thought. You know, you're moving away, and I give you this card and say, May the Lord watch between us while we're absent from each other. How sweet. The problem is in context, this beautiful thought <laughs> is an agreement being made between Jacob and his uncle Laban because they don't trust each other. <laughs> They've been stealing from each other and they are now calling God as a witness that they're going to leave each other's sheep alone and that Jacob won't mistreat Laban's daughters. And there's nothing beautiful about the thought in context. And we could do this with a number of passages where we really, greeting cards do some really funny things with the text. One of my favorites is uh, a greeting card that's for uh, occasions of baby showers and wedding showers. says, they rejoiced and made merry and gave gifts to one another. Which is a quote from Revelation, when the people of the beast kill the prophets of God. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, so we want to watch, uh, we want to watch what the context is. So the promise to Abraham had three parts. I'm going to make a great nation of your descendants, I'm going to give them the land of Canaan, and then through them I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. It is critical to remember the third part of this promise. God had a purpose. and He wasn't picking Israel because He loved Israel more than everybody else. He wasn't picking Israel because they were better than everybody else. He makes that very clear. He says, I chose to promise my promise to Abraham. God is choosing Israel for a greater purpose. It's part of the grand story of God in the Bible. I often represent that story this way in talking about who God is in the Bible. as the God of the mighty acts. The, the mighty acts that reveal 
uh, the character of God, the will of God, the purposes of God, who God is, is revealed in Scripture primarily by what He does. And there are certain acts that are used by Scripture repeatedly to point to who God is. I don't have time to kind of run through all of this theology, but here real quick is what's going on. God creates the world. The world, of course, plunges into chaos. So God calls Abraham and begins this mission to redeem the world. He creates then a nation out of Abraham's people, delivers them from Egypt and brings them to the promised land. He raises up King David as a shepherd of his people and as the kind of prototype of the Messiah. The kingdom then is a disaster and God brings judgment. Most of the Old Testament is connected in one way or another to the exile as an explanation of why it happened, as prophecies related to it, about the return from it. It's a critical event in the Bible and forms the backdrop of much of what the New Testament says about uh, the uh, end times and the final judgment of God. Then we get the Jesus story. God starts fulfilling the promises that he had made in the prophets of the exile uh, by entering the world in Christ. Uh, the miracles of Jesus function like the mighty acts of God in the Old Testament in revealing who Jesus is. Uh, they're not just magic shows. You know, they're, they're designed to point to the character of Jesus. Critical point about the miracles of Jesus. He has all the power in the world and he uses it to heal, not to kill, which was exactly the opposite of what the people expected the Messiah to do. He was supposed to come and kill the Romans and push them out. There's these, all these mighty acts reveal something about who God is and what he's about. The death and resurrection of Jesus, of course, is the climax of the story, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the creation of the church, uh, the people of God who will continue this work and this mission until the last mighty act when Jesus returns and all uh, reaches its culmination or consummation. Notice the tree. Recognize the tree? No, you don't. But you should know what it is. It's the tree of life because the story begins and ends in the garden. In the Bible, the story begins and ends in the garden. It begins with the God who creates people to live in relationship with them, and at the end of the story, he's working to restore that relationship that's symbolized in this language of the garden and the tree of life and the river of life and so on. This is the story. The promise of Abraham has to be understood in the context of this story. And however we apply the promise to Abraham to current events, it has to be consistent with this narrative. Because this is where the story, or where the promise was made, and this is what the promise is about. It's about God's mission to bless all the nations of the world through Jesus Christ as a descendant of Abraham. That is consistent. That's nothing new to me. That is very consistent Christian theology. This is what God has been about. Am I right, Richard? <laughs> now, let's look at another example of a promise that God made forever. As he creates the nation of Israel, prepares them to enter the promised land, appoints Aaron to be the first high priest, and Aaron's descendants are going to continue the priesthood. God says, the, uh, the priesthood will be theirs, Aaron's sons, his descendants, by a statute forever. What's the problem with that? New Testament comes along and says, no. <laughs> Jesus' priesthood replaces that priesthood, is superior to that priesthood. 
It's what the book of Hebrews is about. Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of the Levites and Aaron. Point of the New Testament is Jesus is high priest and we are now a kingdom of priests and this priesthood belonged to the Old Covenant. But God said forever. Forever is a tricky word in the Bible. Forever doesn't always mean forever without end no matter what. There are two uh, factors that can play into how the word forever is understood. One is that often the word forever might be better translated something like for the age. It's often a language that means for this age, as long as this age continues. Sometimes in the New Testament it can refer to the age to come. So an eternal uh, uh, fire is the fire that belongs to the age to come. Eternal life is the life of the age to come that we already begin experiencing now. So you have to watch a little bit how the word's being used. The other thing is, that, and this is going to introduce a concept that I'm sure will be difficult for some of us, but uh, promises and prophecies in the Bible always have conditions. Uh, we, uh, we stand at the altar to say our wedding vows and promise to love each other forever. Judy and I have an expression we sometimes have used with each other. I, this is a little sweet for your coffee here, but we're, we <laughs> call each other our forever love. You know, what does that mean? Well, so long as you both shall live. Provided you don't run off with the milkman or try to have me killed for the insurance money. Did anybody say that at your wedding vows? Anybody stand before the preacher in the congregation and say, I promise to love you forever as long as you don't kill me for the insurance money? But we all meant it. If I found out Jesus, if I found Jesus, if I found out Judy took out a contract on me, <laughs> I think the wedding might be reversed, you know? The same thing's true in the Bible. Covenants have conditions. Promises are made within context and conditions that are sometimes explicit and sometimes uh, implied and not actually stated explicitly. The promise to, Abraham, to Aaron was a promise forever for that age, for as long as the temple continued and God's work with the people of Israel in that way continued. But when Jesus came, which was the ultimate point, that age ended. We entered a new covenant with the new priest. Christians have always understood the Bible that way on the subject of the priesthood. But for some reason we want to read the promise to Abraham as forever without question or condition, but we don't read the promise to Aaron that way. Jeremiah makes this point very explicitly. What have I got, about five minutes left? In Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah says very explicitly, the prophecies of God have conditions. So he says, God says to Jeremiah, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I'll pluck them up or break them down or destroy them, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, 
then I will turn, I will relent, I will repent, you could translate it, from the disaster that I said I would do to it. Now notice, God says, I prophesied I would destroy them. But if they repent, I won't do it. He says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will build or plant it, and then it does evil in my sight, and they don't listen to my voice, then I will relent, repent, change from the good that I said I would do to it. That's very explicit. God says, I may have prophesied, spoken the word of God through a prophet, I'm going to do good to this people, but if they start doing bad, the deal's off. And that's very consistent in the prophets that you see this constant call of repentance where God's judgment is coming. And Jeremiah is saying that's just built into the deal of prophecy is that when I say I'll do this, I am not bound to do that no matter what you do. This is in the context of a relationship with Israel where he's expecting them to keep the covenant. And when they don't, he brings judgment. So we see this then at times, uh, this implicit or explicit example in some other forever kinds of promises and prophecies. So God says to David in 2 Samuel 7, I will raise up offspring after you, establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. And in Samuel there's no if. But in Chronicles, there's an if. God says to David in Chronicles, It is Solomon your son who will build my house and my courts, and I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules uh, as he is today. Of course, if you know the story, you know Solomon didn't. He became the biggest polygamist in the Bible, began building pagan temples for his wives, uh, uh, moved into idolatry and God came along and says I'm ripping uh, most of the kingdom away from you. Uh, so uh, there's an if. David says to Solomon then, uh, Solomon my son know that the God uh, uh, that the God of your father know the God of your father and serve him if you seek him he will be found with you but if you forsake him he will cast you off forever. <laughs> so the same God that says I'm going to establish your throne forever says but if you don't I'm going to cast you off forever. And then God says to Solomon, as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David, saying you will not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So sometimes the prophecy is stated as though there's no condition. David will always have a descendant on the throne in Jerusalem. And other times the condition is made explicit, which was always there implicitly that this assumes that you continue to obey the law of God and do what I've told you. The prophets of God say this is the reason why David's descendants lost the throne in Jerusalem. It's because the kings stopped obeying the law, practiced idolatry, uh, uh, not, not just pagan sacrifice, child sacrifice, and so God ripped the throne away from them and sent them into exile, and when they came back from exile, God said, I'm going to bring you back and bring a remnant back, a portion back. When they come back, there's no king on the throne. 
David does not get a descendant on the throne. The descendants of David do not take the throne until very briefly in that period of the Maccabean revolt against the Greek Empire. The New Testament comes along and does not say anything about establishing another king on the throne in Jerusalem. As we'll see next week, when Jesus talks about this, he uses entirely different language. His kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. That's why historically Christians have held the view that the covenant with Israel uh, uh, was replaced by a new covenant with Christ and Christ and the church fulfill that work of Israel, but there's no longer a nation with a kingdom and a temple and a priesthood the way there had been. It's now internationalized. It's fulfilled. It's spreading through all the world. It's no longer a nationalistic faith. And according to the prophets, that is, was the intent of God from the very beginning. So what we're going to do next week is we're going to back up and actually look at something Moses said about this, where he makes this a point rather plainly and try to unpack a little bit more and we'll uh, save time for questions then. I'm sorry that I'm, I'm out today, but I'll hang around for a few minutes uh, if anyone wants to talk. Thank you for your kind attention. <laughs>